0: Welcome to the Ray Harryhausen podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career, and films of a special effects titan.
1: Let loose the cracker! The kingdom of Apucreus must be destroyed.
0: Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences, and legacy of this uniquely talented filmmaker.
1: We demand justice. Justice,
0: justice or revenge. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself from our own archives.
1: A titan against a titan! <laughs> you must win Medusa's head.
0: We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions. So this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic filmmaking.
2: Find, and
0: fulfill
1: your destiny. Hello and uh, welcome to a very special 40th anniversary celebration for Clash of the Titans. Uh, My name's Connor Heaney, and I'm the collections manager for the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. And I'm joined by Foundation trustee and Clash of the Titans mega fan, John Walsh. Hello, John.
2: Hi, Connor. It's great to be here. To be talking about Clash of the Titans, it's probably my favourite Ray Harryhausen film, but also one of my favourite films of all time. So uh, very exciting because we've talked before about the the films, the music and, and makings of before but this is going to be a very sort of special um anniversary edition because there's been other podcasts out there and i've actually been involved in some of those um but you've come up yourself with this amazing strategy to do something which will blow any other harry house and clash of the titans podcast out of the water let's hear your great idea let's hear your elevator pitch as they say so imagine i'm jerry brookheimer and i'm in a lift and you've got like 30 seconds to pitch the
1: idea go Yes, so uh, elevator pitch. Well, what we have at the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation um, is a sort of unique archive from all of Ray's films, including artwork, stop motion models, moulds, tools, uh, books, and, and so much more. And for Clash of the Titans in particular, we hold this incredibly um, complete archive of materials that were used on that film. So as you go back in time to, to some of Ray's earlier projects, uh, there's a higher likelihood of models having deteriorated or having been repurposed in some fashion, but that's not the case for Clash of the Titans. Not only do we hold every single model from that film and every single creature has survived perfectly, but we have often uh, multiple iterations of the same creature and Prototypes and stand-in models and and models that we used for lighting tests and so forth. So we have uh, all of this rich imagery to share with you. Now we have done, as John said, uh, a, a very deep dive into Clash of the Titans in the past on our podcast, and I would encourage you to check out episode seven of our of our show where we did a ninety-minute-long special on Clash of the Titans, and episode thirty where we uh, delved into the music of Clash of the Titans and shared some of the uh, long thought lost John Barry unused score for the film but we thought for this particular episode it was the time to delve into the visual so if you are listening to this in audio version I'd encourage you to check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Ray Harryhausen or on YouTube on the Ray and Diana Harry Housing Foundation YouTube page and uh, check out some of these images because we're going to go through each of the creatures from that film, uh, one by one, as they appear in the movie. And as we said before, Clash of the Titans was Ray's biggest film. Uh, it was his final film, of course, and that's why this 40th anniversary has special resonance for us at the Foundation because that's uh, 40 years since Ray Harryhausen's last picture and it astounds me that to this day people are still talking about it and if anything uh, the movie is more popular than ever. Yes so the 12th of June in the United States the film opened at the
2: same day as Raiders of the Lost Ark and we all remember that film, whatever happened to him, Indiana Jones, Um, and in the UK it opened on the 12th of July So it's fascinating because when these films came out, both Raiders and um, Clash of the Titans, you know, they came, they did business and they went. And lots of other bigger films from the time, and when I say bigger, those that went through the Oscars corridor, aren't remembered now nearly as fondly. And this Clash of the Titans here, for UK viewers, you will have seen it in Christmas week on BBC One, which is quite a prestige slot to be on BBC One in the afternoon on Christmas week. And it shows the longevity of the film, of course, but it shows how much it's beloved, not just by fanboys like myself and Connor, but by the the, the public at large. So it's a film that people often talked about, they watched on VHS and watched numerous times. And uh, for those of you in the UK might recognize this poster, it was used as part of the Smith's crisps campaign. So if like me, you were eating as many packets of Smith's crisps in the summer of 1981 to get those little metal badges um, of the creatures from the film, then um, to recognise the poster, and as we go throughout, we'll be changing backgrounds and showing you stuff, including some of the um, hitherto unseen artworks of uh, of people like Frank White, who did lots of Clash of the Titans concept art. So there'll be uh, much more of that coming up in the show. But uh, who, which creatures up first, Connor?
1: Well, I think as we mentioned uh, before, there was. More stop motion animation in Clash of the Titans than potentially the, the three Sinbad films that Ray Harryhausen had made, but uh, before 1981. So there are so many creatures uh, that populate the movie, and creatures which appear multiple times. Uh, the first creature that you see a harbinger of doom, uh, the vulture. The vulture, which of course uh, makes nightly visits to to Princess Andromeda and uh, transports her to. Calibos's lair. Now the vulture is a, obviously a, a classic Ray Harryhausen creature um, and I think it's fantastic that uh, it's a model that survives to this day because previous winged creatures such as the Rock from the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad uh, are no longer with us and the, uh, the full-size vulture, which you can see on the screen just now, um, still in excellent condition, uh, has, has recently been restored. By Alan Friswell but uh, you know was in, in pretty good uh, st- uh, in a pretty good state before that restoration. Uh, the full size model is joined by a smaller model, which is just a rubber model, no feathers attached. That was for long shots, and as you'll notice, as you can see on screen there, there's a tiny little cage there with Andromeda uh, in the middle uh, for those sequences where the vulture is flying across the sky. Uh, and finally, just uh, in sort of connection with that uh, vulture model. We have another cage for Judy Bowker there. So for that sequence, there are there are three models in our collection. And uh, it's a good start to the film, I guess. It's a good um, introduction to the type of creatures you're going to see populated throughout Clash of the Titans.
2: It is. And do we know what the feathers were, Connor, for the vulture creature? I assume they weren't from a vulture because the actual size of the model is, is yay
1: big for the hero model, isn't it? And sort of that size for the, uh, the insert one. Yes I believe it's um it was crow feathers I believe for for the vulture and as with many of the creatures in the in our collection it's a uh, taxidermy it was a uh, sort of real feathers that were used. Ray visited a taxidermist within London uh to to find the appropriate um feathers or for 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 each of his models and uh, and yes uh, I suppose one one of the dangers with a, a creature like the vulture is a uh, very natural kind of molting with feathers coming off. And that's, uh, that's where Alan has been called in to prevent that happening any further. So who's up next? Next up in the film is Calabos, the Lord of the Marsh. Uh, a favourite of yours, John, I know. And uh, one that we have two models for within the collection. And of course, in the film, Calabos was also played by Neil McCarthy in Makeup. So, uh, so John, what were your memories of Calabos? He was a creature that had a, an impact on you as a young fan. He
2: was. So Calibos originally was going to be this young prince. And if you have the look-in TV tie-in special, you'll see him briefly as a young prince um, slaying all of the sacred herd of flying horses with only pegasus remaining. That was going to be a possible pre title sequence for the film. It didn't happen. You can read all about that in the Lost Movies book and the Lost Movies podcast that I did with you, Colin. The fascinating thing about Calibos is that he was to be the first on-screen, fully-fledged character so when we think about um, Star Wars episode one, the Phantom Menace, apologies, that we have to think about that for a moment, but Jar Jar Binks, excuse me, um, he, was, he was supposedly the first fully on screen digital character, and that was Lucas's intention. Although Armored Best was, who was the mime artist and dancer who, who portrayed him on set in almost a full Jar Jar costume. It's um, a completely CG character in the end, but Ray had the idea years before and with Calabos, he wanted to combine an actor with um, stop-motion performance, and it's great because there's a sequence where Calabos and, and Perseus they battle in the swamp with each other. It's very ambitious. I do think it works. People say, "Oh, but you know when it switches and so on." Yes, but the overall effect is one of um, of real devilishness, if you if that's such a word. There's a real devil made care attitude and a real kind of sinister devil-like close-ups. He has all these freeze frames where he's like. I can't do it as well, but like that. So I thought he was a marvellous character. I have the Frank White background for the lair of the Lord of the Marsh here behind me. And let's take a a quick look now at uh, him having a little bit of a wrestling match with Perseus. That's, I think, still think works really well today, Connor. I mean, that that interaction of live action and animation, it was Ray pushing the boundaries yet again.
1: Yes, and I think it was something that Ray did particularly well throughout his filmmaking career, and you're really seeing the apex here on Clash of the Titans with actors coming into contact with a stop motion model, so to speak, um, and seamless results. And of course, in the cinema, it's it's much different now. We have Blu-rays. We can pause. We can look for. Uh, we can we we'll look for those changes. But uh, on the big screen, uh, and with the chance of seeing this for the first time, it's uh, you know it is completely seamless, and uh, you're blown away by by the effect that's generated and Ray was was quite um he was quite concerned with making sure that people knew that they weren't watching just a man in a suit or a man in a rubber costume so Neil MacArthur didn't have a he didn't have a rubber tail or anything like that. He he, he did the, the close-ups, but uh, Calibos has a couple of features, his tail and his cloven hoof, which makes it clear this is not just a man wearing a costume. And that cloven hoof, that uh, that leg of Calibos, um is actually taken from the legendary Cyclops from the Seven's Voyage of Sinbad. And we can see here on screen, the Cyclops model had been missing a leg for, for many years until uh, Very recently, a replacement was crafted by uh, McKinnon and Saunders and reattached to that model. So there's this lineage from Ray's first color film right the way through to his final picture uh, there in Calabos, and Calabos holds a piece of the Cyclops within him. Now, as well in the archive, we hold all of, uh, I suppose, Calabos' accessories, because of course in the film, his hand is cut off, it's replaced by a, a kind of forked weapon, Um, He has a whip and a horn, uh, which he sort of uh, brandishes. At various parts of the film and we still have his throne, uh, Calabos' incredible throne from the movie um, which again it's great to have all of these bits and pieces connected to Calabos. and as he stands in Edinburgh in our Titan of Cinema exhibition as we speak he, he's currently uh brandishing his forked weapon accessory we thought that was kind of the the most appropriate because there he is uh, the true villain and this is where he um, of course stabs the bag to uh let loose the blood of Medusa and give birth to the scorpions in that a famous sequence we're going to speak, speak about a little later on. Yes, and
2: uh, I, I saw Calabos up close when I made my student film, my film school documentary on Ray, and I was surprised about the size, the size of him. Um, here's a shot here where I tried to recreate the rear projection and uh, we've placed the model in front of a, that's a, way, a bit of a homemade rear projection to get a sense of the character interacting. He was very, very heavy, so he really was a sturdy piece. So I was very glad to uh, to have seen him up close. Who, who's up next, Connor?
1: So next up in the film, we meet uh, Pegasus. Now, Pegasus, probably one of Ray's more kind of most beautiful creations, and in a in a film full of monsters and creatures, uh, Pegasus is a, a a kind of change of pace, uh, a breath of fresh air. And uh, that flying white horse from Greek mythology exists in, uh, in, in two models which survive to this day. We have a larger model, which is in wonderful condition, uh, which has a sort of larger wingspan, uh, and then the smaller model, which was used for the climactic battle with the Kraken. Now. During that uh, during animation for that sequence, Ray doused both Pegasus and the Kraken in glycerin to give a wet look effect, because of course both creatures are seen to be emerging from the sea. And over time, that glycerin has caused a certain amount of deterioration within both models. Now we felt that uh, with Pegasus in particular, this is kind of a lasting testament to to Ray's techniques. So what has been done for for Pegasus is that uh, Alan Friswell has uh, stabilized the model so that it won't deteriorate any further. But because we have two models, both in, in sort of decent condition, we're really able to give a kind of before and after. You can see a fully preserved and restored Pegasus model as well as one which shows some of the effects of the actual animation. From Clash of the Titans. And I think it's important for people to understand what Ray was doing uh, as well. Um, you know, Clash of the Titans, as we'll go on to see, he, it, there was a lot of animation required for that film. And Ray did call upon a couple of assistants for the first time in his career to assist, particularly with Pegasus. So so let's take a
2: look at uh, Alan Friswell at work and um, keeping things uh, stable with Pegasus.
0: Well, there are different. Uh... Methods you can actually work feathers and fur. It has to be reattached. There's a wire frame inside here attached to the armature that the feathers were originally uh, adhered to. That may have to be re-established. Replacement feathers wouldn't be uh, necessary really because we have all
2: the original feathers, and it's just a question of being damaged. So it's a question of actually almost binding them back together almost uh, in much the same way they would have been attached originally to the armature. So there is a certain amount of reconstruction, but not reconstructing the feathers literally, but basically putting them back together so that they actually are stable now. Um, Pegasus, of course, was a difficult one to animate, as you said. Ray said to me, uh, again, in my student documentary, my film school documentary, they they did tests of it with the legs hanging and the wings flapping, and uh, I did ask him about seeing the test. he, uh, he wasn't keen to show them and we haven't found them yet, but uh, I am hopeful that one day we will get to see them because uh, he's just, uh, he's a beautiful piece and in the film he's, he's so iconic and uh, I think really we should take a, a moment now to, to see him in flight. Still very effective and, and with a rousing score there as well Connor. I think uh, Pegasus is, is definitely a,
1: an all-time favourite for the fans. One that has stayed in people's imaginations and one that many people think of when that uh, excellent Lawrence Rosenthal score pops into their, their minds. Um, and it was Jim Danforth uh, who, who did a lot of the animation for Pe- a lot of the flying sequences for Pegasus. Ray did, I guess, a lot of the takeoffs and landings and introductory shots and uh, then was assisted by, uh, you know, equally legendary animator Jim Danforth and he did a lot of the, the flying sequences and that really gave Ray uh, a bit of a, a break because Clash of the Titans was a, a big project for Ray and It took three years to make, uh, including a, a year or more dedicated just to the animation sequences and it's quite incredible when you think of the amount of responsibility on, on one man's shoulders. But next up, uh, again, a change of pace, we have uh, one of Ray's more comical characters, bubo the Owl. And um, bubo the Owl is something a little different, again, from the Ray Harryhausen canon because we have four models in the collection for BooBo the Owl. We have the remote-controlled model which you see in the film which you see being held by the actors throughout the, the likes of uh, harry hamlin and tim pickett smith picking up bubo and burgess meredith of course at the film's end uh we have the large stop motion model which is exactly the same size as the uh, as the remote controlled model that they're both sort of 33 centimeters high we then have a, a smaller model which was only 10 centimeters high and uh this again was used for some of some of the most iconic sequences, including his Boobles introduction, and then there's an even smaller model than that, uh, four centimeter, tiny little Boobles the owl, used for long shots. So uh, a little piece, you know, no 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 bigger than your thumbnail, really. Uh, and we've got a fantastic shot here, taken by Andy Johnson, very recently, of the four Boobles uh, all in the same shot for the first time. And uh, lovely to see that that range of scales. It is, you know, and uh, it shows the craftsmanship involved. The, the the tiniest,
2: littlest bubo um, was the one that flew across the Kraken's um, six-pack at the end of the film across his belly button. So uh, let's let's have a quick look at that uh, close-up of the belly button. There we go. So you know you'd never know that they were different scales, and of course it's it's a. Uh, It's a trick that many special effects people use having different scales of model and in in, uh, other Ray Harryhausen films, that wasn't always possible because the budget didn't allow for different sizes and scales, Um, but it's wonderful to see the Bubos are in in pretty good condition Connor in terms of restoration has Alan had to intervene,
1: I think with with Bubo the owl obviously he's a, a metal Creature, so he doesn't suffer the same kind of latex deterioration. But of course, um, you know, it's, it's always great to have these models assessed. Alan has looked at all of the Bubo models and checked that they're suitable for display and for transportation and that bits of him aren't going to, to fall off uh, when he's packed. So Bubo still looking great. Bubo will be around Forever, and uh, I know he's such a popular creature. We've got some of the um, sketches on screen just now, and some of the designs for Bubo the Owl. I think people are sort of fascinated by the design process um, and, and sort of raise intentions for that particular character. And I have to say, I know that people love seeing Bubo in person. He brings a smile. To, to visitors' faces whenever we exhibit him. And uh, he's a social media sensation. Whenever we post a picture of Bubo, everybody loves him.
2: Well, people used to say at the time, well, in the answer to R2D series, is that why we have Bubo Owl? No, Ray had come up with this idea long before George Lucas decided to remake Flashball and call it Star Wars. Um, um, for those of you who want to do a deep dive into the voice of Bubo Owl, we did a special interview with Adrian Brett as part of our podcast specials. Uh, for Clash of the Titans. So if you look back, the number of that podcast will flash up on screen now because we can't remember it. There it is. Um, So tune into that one as well. Um, Who's up
1: next, Colin? Well, the next creature that we're we're going to discuss really launches a very long sequence of incredible stop motion special effects in Clash of the Titans. And to me, it's one of the film's strengths that when you you sit down, you know, you're going to see a lot of Ray's incredible animation. Dioscalos, the two-headed dog, is the guardian of Medusa's lair and uh, is involved in a a fantastic battle with uh, Perseus and the rest of his crew. And I know this is a creature which you found pretty terrifying as a a youngster, John. I did. You know, I was a little bit scared of dogs when I was a
2: child growing up.
1: And uh, so
2: seeing a two-headed dog looked looked like a two-headed Alsatian to me. I thought, wow, nothing scarier. And I was probably about 10 or so when I saw the film in cinemas, and I was looking at the BBFC notes on the film, the British Board of Film Censors, as they were at the time, or classification as they are today, and they recommended that you you not be uh, beneath the age of 14 for seeing the film. Um, That wasn't advice that was given at the box office or to people going through. I think it was just guidance to parents, Uh, but I'm not sure how parents would have found that guidance because these um, notes weren't really widely published. So I went along and I was, I was quite scared. And little did I know that, that was coming up next because they were um, often wrongly pronounced. People think it's Cerberus, but it's not. It's uh, Plyrocules, as you said. Um, guardians of Medusa's tomb. And this, this is the Frank White artwork for, for Medusa's tombs, as you'll see, or her temple, I should say. Behind me is the artwork for Medusa's temple where the dogs were guarding uh, guarding their mistress. And so I really was quite terrified. So, but little did I know it was going to be a higher level of, of terrification to come with, uh, with Madam herself. Um, but I think it's a very effective scene. It's difficult though, because for special effects, one of the things that special effects directors and technicians like is something dark so that you can hide the way things are created. You can hide whether it's matte lines, whether it's strings or rods and so on. But this takes place in bright daylight. And there's a handheld sequence as well. So as Perseus's men are attacked and they hold up the shields, you see that the camera is moved and it's handheld. So that just makes it uh, more dynamic, but a bit harder then for the animators. And I think it was Steve Archer's job to, uh, to, to wrangle the dogs. And uh, let's, let's take a look. Works today, and I love their little red eyes as
1: well. Connor, do you? Yes, it's great, it's always great to see the uh, Dioscalos sequence because Ray had wanted to put a two headed dog on screen for for many years. Of course, in Greek myth, it's uh, Cerberus, a three headed animal. Um, Ray quickly realized that that would be quite unwieldy as a stop-motion figure in terms of building an armature for a three-headed dog, so uh, I decided to go with this this two-headed creature. It's something that he'd wanted to put on a screen as far back as Jason and the Argonauts, and uh, it's something you delved into in your book, Harryhausen, The Lost Movies. We have some artwork and some prototypes from the early 1960s, which just shows how long this idea had stuck with Ray and how intrigued he was by putting a putting a two-headed dog onto the big screen and and exploring that Greek myth. Absolutely, and you can find out more by looking into Harryhausen, The Lost Movies, and,
2: of course, Vanessa Harryhausen's award-winning new book, Ray Harryhausen, Tyson of Cinema. So I'd recommend you get both. If you get them, you can get them on Amazon with a deal with... um, the Harry House Movie Posters book, which Richard Hollis wrote for us as well, you can get all three for about sixty pounds. So, great, great bargain. There are some books you can't even buy for sixty. You can get all three of these for around sixty pounds. So, no greater bargain to be had, Connor. I, I don't think. Uh, who, who's up next?
1: So, uh, as you've alluded to, after Deoscalus, we're into the Lair of Medusa for probably one of the most famous and most accomplished stop motion sequences of all time. Um, a real masterpiece from Ray Harryhausen, and there was one stop-motion model for Medusa. There were a couple of additional models which he built for for lighting tests and stand-ins and so forth. But in terms of what you see on the on the on the screen, there was one Medusa model, uh, probably the most complex armature that Ray had built to date. And you can see some of the images on screen, uh, the making of Medusa, including a, a shot here of. Janet Stevens, who was the sculptor of Medusa, um, Ray always spoke very highly of the job that she did in, in, in sculpt, helping to sculpt the model based on his designs. And uh, yes, a wonderful creation, Medusa there in her temple with that flickering light and the incredible soundtrack and the score, um, you know, is, some, is really a piece of art. There's no other way of describing what Ray accomplished with Medusa
2: people talk in terms of Ray Harryhausen films and these sequences, and this is sort of at the pinnacle of these sequences, and to create that effect, the, uh, the, the, the flicker of the uh, candles and the, uh, and the, and the other uh, sort of furnace fires that were burning inside, um, Ray created a, a little sort of windmill of what's called a lighting ulcer, and I think there's a shot of it on screen now, we do have it in the archive, and it's just different coloured transparent gels, and they would be rotated as the film is being animated, almost a frame at a time. So it changes the lighting around the temple behind. And so that's part of what makes Medusa seem very much part of the live action. Because of course, trying to match the lighting that was shot months, maybe over a year before with Harry Hamlin and the, and the soldiers, um, makes it all the, the bigger achievements. You know, people look straight at the animation and think, wow, that's great. But what you don't see is the other work that. that that leads to to melding those two worlds seamlessly, even though they might be hundreds of miles apart and certainly over a year apart in terms of filming. you, You never get that sense. There's never that disconnect when you're watching. And yes, people can spot the stop motion techniques, but when you play this film for a younger audience, by the time you get to this sequence in the temple, they are already transported to that world and they recognize that those creatures have a way of movement. They have a way of life about them that yes, it's stop motion, but actually gives them more of a sense of gravitas. And so people are really almost quite anxious when they see something emerging and it's the stop motion technique. And, uh, and, and famously, of course, we, we've talked in the past about Ray's inspiration for, um, for Medusa. And she was in fact inspired by the Hollywood actress, Joan Crawford. As you can see around the lips and eyes, that real kind of crazy stare with the, uh, with the giant's eyebrows. But in terms of restoration, Connor, how, how has, has she fared? Because am I rising saying as one of the as, as the queen of the evil creatures in the collection, she's not really needed much help from us?
1: No, in fact, Medusa, for the most part, still looked to be in excellent condition. The one um, I suppose the one aspect that required treatment was the surface of the latex, which has become rather tacky over time and her bow, her, her bow for. Uh, her weapon, I suppose, it become rather sticky as well, uh, for whatever reason possible to do with that lighting effect, you know, the, the effect of the lights onto the latex rubber. So that's something that Alan has treated. He's um, he's repainted the model so that it could be handled without, you know, risk, uh, risking any damage to the model. Aside from that, Medusa is still in excellent condition. I and mean, when you consider the complexity, all of those snakes in her hair, each of which has a, a different armature, and, uh, you know, all of the hard work that was involved in animation of Medusa. She still looks fantastic and uh, it's great that people can meet her face to face in our exhibitions.
2: I've, I've mentioned in the past and, and people say that's a bit spooky that some of the, the naughtier creatures have leaded, needed less restoration and uh, I'll leave you with this thought before we move on to the next creature. Um, the, uh, the children of the Hydra's teeth were, were born of course from the seven Headed Hydra from Jason and the Argonauts, and the Hydra which guards the entrance to Hell or Hades um, hasn't needed much work at all. And he, of course, is from 1963. Or well, they, are from 1963. So interesting. So who who are we heading towards next, Connor? I know, but uh, I'm just doing it as a friendly feed question.
1: Well, for those of you who remember the film, once uh, once Perseus and, and crew escape from Medusa's lair. Uh, they are they are interrupted once more by by Calabos who sabotages their camp and uh, gives birth through the the blood of Medusa to three giant scorpions, which attack the camp and uh, uh, which 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 uh, kill uh, the captain of the guard, Thalo, played by Tim Pigott-Smith. And again, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely stop motion sequence. Um, I suppose the classic piece of Harryhausen animation and. Uh, more, more fantastic work in the build up to that film's climax. Um, the Scorpions though, I know were, were hard work for Ray in terms of the uh, conditions for the live action and uh, some of the, the lighting issues, which he had for that film uh, gave him many headaches when, when sort of blending in the animation uh, some, some 12 months on.
2: Yes, and of course there was movement in the gate. So what that means is if you look at the frame around this image, that you're looking at now on Zoom. Well, this is roughly the same aspect ratio that Ray would have been shooting uh, Clash of the Titans in, in what's called Academy or 185, similar to your widescreen television. It's a frame at a time. Video isn't like that. Video isn't a series of still images. It's more of a, what's called a, a electronic field grab. But if you imagine taking 24 individual photographs and then putting them in a flick book together, what would make them work is if they were mostly stable and the persons in the frame were doing the movie. However, the frame around the edges for the live action plates actually had some movement in them. And this movement you can actually see in the final film, and it was something Ray wasn't able to cut around or photograph around. Um, and, and it does reveal, as it were, the trick of where the rear projection starts and where the creatures and the animation. Um, are placed in, so it's not something that um, casual viewers will notice. Fans of the film will probably notice. Now that I've said that, they'll slow down and have a look. Ray was always a bit um, frustrated by that. We are talking to Warner Brothers about 4K remaster of Clash of the Titans, and it's one of the areas that we're going to try and have a look at. Um, we can separate those elements out and perhaps correct some of those framing issues. And it's something Ray would certainly have done if he was here today with us. But um, what condition, Connor, are they in it from from a restoration point of view?
1: So the, the scorpions were actually in fairly poor condition. Uh, they had deteriorated pretty badly, whether that's just through the sort of uh, the nature of the latex that was used or the amount of animation that was required. Um, the scorpion sequence was one that was originally quite a bit longer and, and was cut for time, which didn't happen very often with regards to Ray's animation. I think uh, Charles Schneer, uh, had requested that the sequence be cut a little which is why you don't see that third scorpion being uh, dispatched by perseus's crew but no the, the scorpions have now since been restored and are on own display and um again more more wonderful creatures from clash of the titans uh, The scorpions are pretty frightening and vanessa harryhausen tells a story in her book of when her father was building the scorpions um mm-hmm. I won't. I won't give it away. You can check check out her book. But needless to say, these creatures were were all around her home, and uh, Ray occasionally needed to to bring home live specimens to study and to to uh, design from. So, uh, all part of the adventure of growing up with Ray and There was uh, all kinds of living and non living creatures that populated the the household.
2: Now, up blast is going to be who the Stygian witches describe as a titan amongst a titan. How's that for acting? Where's Bafta now? Um, and of course it's, it's it's this fella here, it's um, this fella here at this side. It's the Kraken, the Kraken, who is effectively the star of the film because he's the one in which all of the drama hangs around. And although we've there'll be people screaming at the screen, now nah, the Kraken appears earlier, the Kraken appears earlier. The Kraken does appear earlier, but the Kraken's kind of big finale scene, Connor, is is, is at the end of the film. Um, and, and not sort of up there at the front, but um, he, he does. His presence looms large, doesn't he? So he's like the Darth the character in a sense, but he doesn't appear until the until the final act. But of course, there was the uh, the, the stunning um, destruction of Argos before they had the catalog. And maybe this is why they had to get the catalog because so much water, all in people running, they didn't want to get their hair wet. They're on holiday. They're wearing sandals. I agree with that. And so. Everything was lost. And so they started putting everything then into a catalogue after that. Thus, the Argos catalogue was born. But look at this, the destruction of Argos. This is fantastic because it reminds us of cinema from the 70s, where um, great tidal waves of destruction. People wanted to see where well, he comes. People wanted to see things, you know, in jeopardy, whether it's Earthquake, the Poseidon Adventure and, and Towering Inferno. This actually set things up. But um, it was a great idea, wasn't it, Colin, to have the Kraken this early on in the film because it gave you a real sense of this is what you have to fight against. So you, you tease it by showing a part of the Kraken and, and what he can do, which is absolutely amazing. Um, but you don't have the confrontation until the end. So I think there's always that sense of anxiety that <clears throat> whether you defeat uh, Medusa or Calibos or the Scorpions and so on, how are you going to defeat something like this? Because um, if he has this sort of destruction, then You know, the Tyson, amongst Tysons, could defeat Medusa anyway, couldn't he? I mean, you can imagine um, the Kraken picking up Medusa or any of the other characters and destroying them. In the original draft of the film, uh, Pegasus was to have been destroyed by the Kraken. He was going to be torn in half, um, like chicken drumsticks. And the the censors said, no, you you can't really do that, and not for the certification you want. So that was all changed. But um, who's going to tidy this mess up? Look at the state of the place, Connor. Look at that. There's water everywhere and as we know water damage is the worst damage.
1: Yes that's right um a, a great bit of foreshadowing there of uh, the Kraken and the film, that film as you say is building up towards this uh, final confrontation there. I'm pretty pleased I have to say that, that Pegasus wasn't torn to pieces. <laughs> I think that would have been fairly gruesome. I know it may perhaps uh, Resonate more with the original Greek myths, but uh, it, it maybe would have been a step too far in terms of dispatching race friendlier creatures. Um, the Kraken there, I mean, there were multiple Kraken models, but for the most part, it's the Kraken that you see in the images on screen just now, the full length Kraken that was used for animation. And uh, that, that this, this again was a creature which uh, was doused in glycerin, so had become quite sticky over the years um, and has now been restored by, by Alan Friswell. There was also a, a larger Kraken model, which essentially was the size of a human torso with, with arms and a head and so forth. That was only used very sparingly in the film. You can only see this creature, uh, that version of the creature for, uh, for a couple of shots. And to be honest, when uh, when we maneuvered this, the larger Kraken model for restoration uh, for the exhibition last year, I, w- I was astounded at its weight. I couldn't carry it on, on my own. I needed Alan to assist me with lifting it. It's incredibly heavy. Uh, so to carry it, let alone to animate it, must have been an, um, an amazing feat of strength by Ray Harryhausen. Uh, and I think for that reason, you don't see much uh, animation for the, the largest Kraken model in the final film. And, as you, you may have seen uh, in these clips that John has been showing, uh, there was an even larger Kraken model, 15 feet long, uh, created by Colin Arthur, which was built, transported to Malta, and then down, down, you know thrown into the, the water for, for some shots, but uh, unfortunately It was very difficult to manipulate in a fashion that would allow for a kind of realistic model movement, although a clip does appear in an early trailer from the film. Isn't that right, John? Yes, that's right. So if you look at this clip
2: now, you'll see the Kraken's head
1: turning. Look at that. There you go.
2: Um, That's from a deleted scene from the film. So this is fascinating because this is the trailer that's cut together. So it would be from what's considered to be the locked final print. And yet this little turn of the head from the Kraken hasn't been used. It's great, I love it. Um, I'd love to find the original trim of that, and I'm sure it's there somewhere. Hopefully the the good people down at Warner Brothers might let us have a look in their archive. Um, But yes, I mean, again, it, it answers the question of, what can you do with a larger budget? You know, on a, on a previous Simbad, Ray would never have built different scales for the Kraken because he appears so briefly towards the end. So the larger scale one where we have the torso and we have the, the, the close-up of the beak it's where the um, larger creature is used um, on screen. But mostly it's what's called the hero model, which is the one um, that you can see Ray with here, um, which is the one we mostly know and it's the one that's m- most articulate from, uh, from top to tail. But he's a a wonderful creature. And, you know, he's really iconic, isn't he, Connor? I mean, it's, um, everyone loves the Kraken. Everyone loves that design. In Nordic myth, of course, we've talked before that the Kraken was actually an octopus. And I don't think anyone would have been that excited to have seen an octopus on screen. Raided it definitively with it came from beneath the sea. And of course, there's been one in 20,000 leagues under the sea, a Disney film. But um, this sort of half monkey, half um, kind of lizard, is, um, is wonderful, isn't it? And it's quite reminiscent of the emir from, from 20 million miles to earth as well. Um, but what he doesn't do to Argos, um, and you know, this is the thing to remember about Ray Harryhausen films, it's not just the animation with the creatures, it's all of these sequences, you know, it's the underwater worlds, it's the destruction of um, towns and cities, wonderful model work. There's model work as well as um, blue screen work with people inserted here as well as there's um, some glass mat work at the edge of the, uh, the shoreline there in, in Argos. You can see some extra buildings. So this is all down to having more, more time and more money to spend. And, and I think it's incredibly effective. And it's great that uh, he appears last. It's, uh, it's a great on-screen sort of King Kong moment, isn't it, Colin?
1: Yes, I think, yeah, throughout Ray's work, there's, all, there's always little nods to King Kong and I suppose the Kraken with Judy Bowker tied to the rocks as Andromeda um, is about as reminiscent of King Kong as you can get and it was nice of Ray to, to throw that little tribute in to his favourite film and just that scale of, of the creature you know that, that massive giant um, titan uh, is a great way to to, to sort of finish the film off so to speak it's a, it's a great great to have Ray's largest creature dominate the screen in that fashion for the, the final sequence in it, its final film and um, there's a lot of clever animation as you mentioned earlier with bubble flying down and with Pegasus flying across the screen uh, there's a lot going on there and the Kraken we've got some excellent artwork as well for Ray's design of the Kraken I think you've touched upon uh, some of the concept art which was created by other artists for the film, but Ray did um, create a couple of key drawings in his traditional uh, in his traditional style for, for this film, including Medusa in her lair and the Stygian witches sequences. But for, for all of the, the, the creatures you'll have seen on screen, some of Ray's sketches and some of his artwork, and uh, as, as we say, there's a real treasure trove of visual treats for Clash of the Titans. When I saw the film in 1981,
2: I didn't know how the film was going to finish. I made sure I stayed well clear of the movie tie-in um, uh, graphic novel that Look In magazine did, because I didn't want to know, you know, you didn't want to know. And. And enough of friends at school weren't in touch with me over the summer holidays, so they weren't able to tell me. And so it was great to see it. I was kind of thinking, well, how is he going to do this? You know, in, in what sense? And there isn't the a jeopardy moment at the end because it doesn't all work out, you know, for, for Perseus. You know, things kind of go wrong at the edge of the sea because the, the, uh, the Kraken is nobody's fool. So um, it's great, you know, he, he, he grabs victory from the, from the jaws of death and disaster there at the end. And it's it's a great finale to the film. I mean, it's um, for those who were of a certain age at a certain time, they will remember where they were when they saw Clash of the Titans and they will remember how old they were. But now they'll be 40 years older if they've seen it in the cinema. And uh, how can it be, Connor? I'm I'm in my mid-30s. I I just, I can't do the math, but as the Americans might say, math. Um, But uh, I think that probably finishes our, our, our sort of walk down memory lane, doesn't it, for Clash of the Titans?
1: Yes, that's right. There's one final Easter egg in terms of uh, the creatures, which you may have not have noticed at the end of the film. Of course, Burgess Meredith, as i is sitting with uh, Bubu the owl resting on his shoulder, and Bubu's got a, a lovely little bandage and a walking stick from, from his misadventures with the Kraken, which I think, again, is a nice little a, comedic touch at the end of, of the movie, and uh, one that, that always brings a smile to people's faces whenever we, we do screenings of Clash of the Titans. But it's, it's been great to delve into the creature archive for the film, 40 years on, as I say, and it's a, it's a film still worth celebrating.
2: Well, look, thank you all for joining us. And I hope you'll agree that this was an alternative deep dive into the film. And we've revealed new layers that haven't been revealed before. Because, of course, if you've seen other Clash of the Titans podcasts, you haven't seen the best. Because only from the Ray and Diane Harryhausen Foundation do you see the proper inside story on all of the creatures. I'd like to thank Conor Heaney for joining us this week and on this podcast. Remember, you can listen and download wherever you get your podcasts. Do share this video when you see us as well. And go and watch Clash of the Titans for the 40th. Until next time, stay safe, everyone. Copyright in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered Scottish charity, number SC001419 2021. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can find our Facebook and Twitter links.